Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynaman, today for Jerome McDonald. On Mondays through hurricane season, we feature Puerto Rican construction as we follow efforts to rebuild the island. And Puerto Rico is in the news as a federal judge who oversees the island's $74 billion bankruptcy just approved a plan to restructure part of the island's debt. Those of you following our coverage know this process has been called a giveaway by opposing sides. Many Puerto Rican citizens and economic justice advocates call the restructuring inhumane austerity. While some venture capitalists and bondholders feel they're being left holding the bag, that Puerto Rico is getting off easy. With us to discuss is Kate Long, a principal researcher for the Puerto Rico Clearinghouse, which provides bondholders and research with research and analysis on legal and legislative efforts to restructure the island's debt. Kate, welcome to Worldview. Thanks, Steve. Good to be here. Kate, there is a separate deal regarding the debt that's pending, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But first, could you please lay out the details of last week's agreement with the Government Development Bank? Sure. So Puerto Rico has 18 classes of debt, and one of them, which has been probably one of the most complex legally, is uh, the debt of the Government Development Bank, which is an old government institution that was originally created to um, give out loans, basically, to private businesses and create economic activity. But over the decades, it morphed into kind of a Ponzi scheme, where the Puerto Rican government would take funds from one side of the government and sort of, in a sneaky way, put them in other parts and then borrow in the market and hide that money. I mean, it was just, it was a disaster. So last week, after a long, long amount of work, um, they were able to get together the bondholders, the credit unions, um, the municipalities, which had deposited money in this bank, get everybody sort of in agreement, and they're reducing the debt of the government development bank to about 55 cents on the dollar. And then they went to the court and said, look, we've worked out this really complex thing and we would like you to bless it. And the judge, Swain, the federal judge overseeing this, agreed, and that deal is done. Okay, so when you say a Ponzi scheme, obviously there are various parties who would challenge that a representation of why the money was taken, how it was used. And so that sort of translates or... Uh, in transition to the next part of this, there's the municipal debt issuer called COFINA. Now, reportedly, there's a deal that's pending that would save Puerto Rico $7 billion. Can you talk about that? Right. So COFINA is actually very simple in terms of how the debt was structured compared to the government development bank. COFINA is what they called a bankruptcy remote vehicle, which was created by the Puerto Rican government in 2007 to issue debt away from the government, and they pledged a stream of tax revenue to repay that debt. And there's two tiers of debt in that deal, a senior tier and a subordinate tier. Seniors are going to get about $0.93 recovery on their 100 and then the subordinate, which is next in line, is going to get about $0.56. So that's a big, big pile of debt, and... It took a lot of wrangling between many parties, but they are moving towards getting the court to bless that one, too. So what's the process going forward after these deals, if these deals uh, go through to reach final approval and for uh, this restructuring to be implemented? What are the next steps? So that's three classes of the 18 classes. 
we have still 15 other classes of debt. And depending on, you know, the individual pool of debt, there's um, different legal security for them. There's different um, repayment, you know, cash flows that repay those uh, individual pools of debt. And each one of those are being worked out individually. So we have about a quarter between those two deals, the COFINA and the GDB. That's about a quarter of this debt stack. And probably over the next year or so, um, all these other pools will get worked out too. So of the 18 pools of debt, we're talking about three, that leaves 15. So um, how do you see this all going over the, the coming months and years? Yeah, so I mean, all, many of them are in process. The debt of the electric utility has been negotiated for over three years. And they've gotten to deals and then certain parties have blown them up and then the hurricane happened and all these various things. So, you know, many of these pools have been worked on for quite some time. And, you know, it just takes a lot of uh, fighting. In many cases, it takes litigating in court, sometimes negotiating. Sometimes we need more information where the, the financials for these various entities have not been transparent. And we need to see exactly, you know, what money is available because usually often in a bankruptcy the debtor will say i have no money to pay you and the process is the court says okay prove it show us Mm -hmm. show your financials you know disclose the assets don't hide your assets and so that's kind of the process that's been happening and so so typically when you have these sort of austerity repayment or when you have tax cuts and such, there is a calculation or there's anticipation of a certain amount of economic growth that will assist in um, making people whole. Uh, mm-hmm. in, so the criti- the critics would say that the economic growth that people are hedging on or that maybe you yourself are hedging on isn't necessarily isn't realistic and that in that case it would make it almost impossible to resettle this debt? What do you say about that? Yes, there's a lot of criticism like that. And, you know, I mean, I have mixed opinions about about it. I think that there's certainly a huge economic uplift that comes from um, the federal government, you know, inserting 60 or $80 billion into the Puerto Rican economy to do reconstruction after Maria that those funds are segregated. They're only allowed to be used for infrastructure and programs that are appealed. There's another, in my view, in terms of the long term for Puerto Rico, there's much more important um, part of this process, which is the Puerto Rican government removing a lot of barriers to getting business done there. And for example, registering property title there can take up to six to nine months, which is, you know, impossible to think of for us on the mainland where this is almost, you know, a one day process, getting your car titled, you know, you, many people take off work all day. They go stand in line at the government office. That also seems extremely odd to us. The Puerto Rican government just needs to get the bureaucracy reduced, make it easier for people to either, you know, do their government, you know, the work they have to do from the government to, to have legitimate activity or make it easier to start businesses and create jobs. It's ranked by the World Bank. Puerto Rico is ranked in the lowest tier globally of the ability for people to do business. And they really just have to, you know, clean a lot of that inefficiency up and make it less bureaucratic. Kate Long is a principal researcher for the Puerto Rico Clearinghouse, which provides bondholders with research and analysis on legal and legislative efforts to restructure the island's debt. So what exactly, how did you get involved in this and what is your role? 
So I worked, well, I've been in bond market for a long time, but I worked for the news agency Reuters and wrote a daily column on municipal bonds, including about Chicago's death. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, I predicted, I said the government of Puerto Rico was going to be insolvent. And it was a very early call. A lot of people thought I was, you know, didn't know what I was talking about. And then for six years, I've followed and studied very closely. And then when I left Reuters, I started doing independent research for people that were involved in the Puerto Rican um, debt restructuring. So just over time, I've just become, mm-hmm. you know, increasingly knowledgeable. Would you say you serve as an advisor to bondholders? Oh, yeah, mainly just try and get, you know, clear information. I mean, for one, a lot of things happen in Spanish. So, you know, there's just the issue of translating. They also don't operate their government in the same way that most states operate. And then there's the the issue of Congress is involved um, because they wrote a special law. And then now since there's a hurricane, you have all the federal agencies involved in various ways because they are supervising, they're allocating and supervising funds going into Puerto Rico. Sure. Um, Kate, before we go, we have about a minute left. The president of the United States said that he wants to cut off hurricane relief uh, to Puerto Rico, and he accused the Puerto Rican government of taking hurricane relief money and handing it directly over to bondholders. Um, Do you believe this is true, and do you believe Puerto Rico should get more hurricane relief? Well, number one, federal law is explicit. You cannot use federal funds to pay off debt. Two, Puerto Rican government segregates local revenues they collect from federal funds they're receiving to rebuild the infrastructure. There's no commingling of those funds. And as for should Puerto Rican get more aid, I mean, on one hand, I'd love them to get everything. But on the other hand, I'm a taxpayer, so I'm paying for it. So, you know, in terms of that, we just need to let them, you know, get going with the $60 they've been allocated and then kind of reassess in a year or two, I think. Well, Kate, thank you so much. We're going to talk more about the debt down the road, and we hope that you'll join us again. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me. That was Kate Long, a principal researcher for the Puerto Rican Puerto Rico Clearinghouse, and she advises bondholders on how to deal with the legal and legislative, as she would say, hurdles to restructuring the island's debt. In a few minutes, you'll hear a discussion on how politics of nationalism affect the marginalized people of India. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynuman. Today for Jerome McDonald. President Trump caused a stir recently when, without apology, he declared himself a nationalist. But years before this recent global wave of political populism, leaders like India's Narendra Modi and his Hindu BJP party rose to power on a hyper-nationalist message based in Hindu identity. And similar to Trump, the BJP has been accused of fomenting resentment towards religious and other minorities. 
As India approaches elections early next year, recently Jerome McDonald sat down with Salman Khurshid, a senior advocate in India's Supreme Court and the former Minister of External Affairs. I was wondering what you think about the contrast between the political scene in India and the political scene in the United States. Is the politics in India a little bit like what's happening in the United States? In the United States, we have the Republican Party and they're a party of the white majority and the Democrats are the party for minorities and everybody else. And in India, the BJP, the ruling party, the Hindu Nationalist Party, they are the party of Hindu India. And then there's the Congress party, which is the party for Muslims, for Muslims and everybody else. Is that accurate? Well, what you've said about the United States may well be, well be accurate because you understand the ground here better. But there's a little difference. There are similarities between the United States and India in the present age. But there's a difference. The Congress party is not... Uh, only a party of uh, minorities, uh, something that the BJP has tried very hard to project. Congress remains very significantly a party of all people, and we are emphasizing this repeatedly, that we have obviously an equal concern about Hindus, but we need to tell the world and we need to tell the country what is it a uh, genuine concern that Hindus might have and to the extent that they have any genuine concerns, we will address them as much as we address concerns of minorities. Is the BJP doing a pretty good job of coming after traditional Congress voters? They've got a big new health plan that they're rolling out. They rolled out uh, some affordable banking legislation. They're doing things for the little guy, and that was traditionally the Congress Party's uh, realm. Well, that's happened with other parties as well in Delhi the Aam Aadmi Party uh, of Mr. Kejriwal has done something similar, uh, populist politics for people who are the underprivileged, the disadvantaged, something that we had done traditionally. But, you know, the restlessness and the dissatisfaction that despite promises, adequate relief doesn't come. And that's not easy in an economy the size of India. But what the BJP is doing is they're just relying on a miasma. They talk about things and then congratulate themselves a few months later saying, we promised you this and we've done it. I think it's a little bit like Mr. Trump on some spheres. He may have delivered on trying to block Mexicans coming here, but I'm not quite sure that he's delivered as far as jobs are concerned. But be that as it may, for us, it's very, very clear that although the BJP feels that it's going to take away our traditional vote, I'm quite confident that that will not happen and that this is a transitory phase and we will get back to controlling this part of our electorate. What does Congress have to offer right now? Well, frankly, today we offer a composite congregation of all parties who may not necessarily have the same ideology on economy, the same ideology on social benefits to individual or specific groups. But what we do offer is a base for all political parties that are opposed to the BJP coming together. And that's the big idea that we have floated. It's not something that will happen overnight, but uh, we are working on it. Our Congress president, Mr. Rahul Gandhi, is working on it. Next two, three months will make it very clear what happens. Explain what that means. I mean, regional parties, uh, 
parties that may be ideologically kind of uh, yeah. lopsided to the Congress party would come together with the Congress party to go against the BJP in the general election? Well, they're not lopsided to the extent that they're all largely left of center. They may have a issue about Congress's plan for reform in which we opened up the markets, we took away state control over unions and took away state control over investment. So to that extent, they might still be wanting to be hands-on and not let go of the power of the state. To that extent, there may be a difference of emphasis between them and us. But on certain points, we are very clear. We are very clear that the kind of divisive politics the BJP has done has to be repudiated, has to be rejected, and has to be eliminated. And then, of course, some degree of uh, social welfare policies that we introduced in UPA2, which was our last government, are policies that would be acceptable to many of these regional states. The problem only is that the regional states have a peculiar focus on their own matters in their own area or region, whereas Congress has to think in terms of pan-India and therefore where do you find the right balance so that they don't feel that they've been taken for a ride and, and we don't make a series of commitments to regional parties that are then difficult to sell to the entire country. I'm talking with Salman Kurshid. He's ex-minister of external affairs under the last Congress government in India. And we're talking about the politics there and in the wake of the general election coming up in India next year. And he's been in Chicago talking with a non-resident Indian community here and with the International Strategy and Policy Institute. I wonder if you could mention some of the divisive things that the BJP has done, because I think probably to most people who sit here and read the news Generally, they see uh, Mr. Modi as this strong leader. He likes economics. He was very close with Barack Obama, and he's kept good relations with President Trump. They see somebody as just a strong leader. Um, what's the divisiveness? Stuff? Well, he certainly has projected himself as a very strong leader. But I think it might be an overstatement. Barack Obama um, was shown by him to the people as a very dear friend in uh, departure from Indian tradition, he addressed him on the media as Barack. We don't do such things in our country, but be that as it may. Before President Obama left India, he took one last dig at Mr. Modi and made a very, very clear, very clear pronouncement that a country like India cannot survive and cannot prosper with divisive politics. So Mr. Modi has a hypocritical sort of style of functioning, say one thing to people out here and say one thing to people at home. He's silent on many terrible things that have happened. He's silent on the public lynchings that have happened in protest against uh, and false protests against uh, cow slaughter. There is no issue in our country about cow slaughter. Wherever the cow slaughter is banned under the Constitution, everybody accepts it. Nobody challenges it. And the challenges that have come in the Supreme Court have finally been settled. But he's raising this bogey. How many hangings have there been? I don't think most people get that. Well, I can rattle off at least 10 such cases, but 10 cases of merciless, brutal killings, some of them actually videographed by the killer, uh, is a horrible thing for a country. Even one is one too many. And the trouble is not the numbers. The trouble is the attitude of the government. The attitude of the government is do nothing about it. Let things happen in the normal course. Then again, there are 
technical issues that this government is raising, trying to divide Muslim women from Muslim men, as though this government has a special concern for Muslim women and the Muslim men are oppressive and, and hostile to their women. And they pretend that they've got Muslim women to vote for them. Uh, this is another charade that they have created. So I'm afraid the strong man is beginning to look a little wimp. And uh, to say that the strong man is still on his feet might be a little difficult. His hope now lies in the grand alliance not happening in the country. Because statistically, in terms of mathematics, if a grand alliance happens, he was at 31, 32% of the vote, which has certainly come down. And if it comes down to 25 or 26, and the Grand Alliance has the balance of 75, he's not going to be back in power. I wanted to ask you some questions about the nature of the Me Too movement in India. You, you were speaking about uh, women in India there. And I noticed that M.J. Akbar, uh, who's in the Foreign Affairs Ministry with the BJP, has been accused by multiple women. One of them was National Public Radio's business editor, who wrote in the Washington Post earlier this month about her encounters with M.J. Akbar. How is the nature of these relationships changing now? Well, I, I think what's happened is there was a, there was a normal and, and natural acceptance of a degree of exploitation, particularly amongst the elite in our country, because their connections were so strong that to bring it out in the open would have had to walk out of those connections, which is very sad, very, very sad. And then this is not just a stray incident or two. This is, uh, uh, unfortunately, a serial Me Too. Uh, this is something that has a huge number of people who are complaining, or his claim may be that this is all cooked up and this is all done for a political reason, but I think that's a very far-fetched defense, particularly of the more recent disclosures that have come. People are confused about accountability in this country, and lots of people seem to lose their position almost instantly in this country over Me Too accusations. But here, M.J. Akbar hasn't lost anything. He's not... Well, he's lost something that he worked all his life to get. Uh, he, want, he was a minister of state for external affairs, and his life's ambition was to be Minister of External Affairs. So he's not only lost what he could have got, he's also lost what he had. And I think that his reputation has been irreversibly tarnished and hurt. And I don't see him having a very major public uh, role in times to come. And I think that in his case, it's almost like those women feel that if we can slay the dragon then the smaller people are going to fall easily. But of course, let me admit that this is about many, many years ago, decades ago. And it may be very difficult for them to find the evidence, may be very difficult for them to convince courts that this is exactly what happened. So we'll have to see how the criminal justice system proceeds with this. I wanted to ask a question about the uh, sodomy law that was struck down in India last month. This is a big deal. This is going to really change things for LGBTQ people in India. Well, this is very interesting because we had a remarkable judgment from the High Court Justice A.P. Shah when he was Chief Justice of the Delhi High Court. He had given this judgment, and a bench of two judges in the Supreme Court overturned it, saying that this is not a matter for courts to interfere in. It should be done by a legislature. And then, of course, because of public pressure and this lobby being very, very powerful, in a sense, because of media representation, the court agreed to hear it afresh. 
And there was a clear in indication that this is what would happen because just on the eve of this judgment, the court had given a far-reaching judgment on the right to privacy, a constitutional right to privacy which was ambiguous for over 30 years in our country. So the right to privacy, dignity, autonomy, all these propositions had already come out and there couldn't have been any hope then for uh, holding back on keeping the criminal element in this. But it's only a beginning. It's only decriminalized between consenting adults. There is still a long way to go, and I'm sure that people uh, from that lobby are hoping that there will be more, perhaps this time by parliament, but that they need more acceptability, and they want a lot more than they've been able to get thus far. You're a former minister for external affairs. I haven't talked to you a lot about external affairs. What's the India's greatest challenge right now? India's greatest challenge is to conceive for itself a new international role. We were tucked away comfortably in the NAM movement, and we were tucked away comfortably in a special relationship with the USSR. Now, all that's gone. Our markets are gone from Eastern Europe. The special relationship with USSR is gone. We've always had, from the time of Nehru, a special personal relationship with the American president. At that time, it was President John Kennedy. But we've not been able to agree with a lot of American policies over the years. So there was an acceptable level of distance that we kept from American policy. Now, that's all in a tumble wash now. Will the Americans stop short of expecting us to turn allies of the United States? Would they expect us to put men with boots in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, which I think is, despite all the changes in the world, is today emotionally in our country unacceptable? Or will they find a balance between allies and, and friends? And what we have projected that over the years in our government was to say we will be strategic partners, whatever that means, but we will not be allies. That's a very critical difference as far as we are concerned. So I think the challenge is how do we balance the Russian Federation with the United States of America, particularly with a president like President Trump? How do we bring in China there? What do we do with our enormous relationship with Iran where you have growing distress? Um, what do we do with Europe? And you have some differences in tension with Europe, particularly after Brexit. And finally, and this is for us to handle. I mean, others may be interfering. But finally, how do we keep the balance in our own region, in the seven countries that surround India, that are smaller countries, but equal in our association, and countries that expect a great deal from us and often show off Chinese offers to match them. And I think this is what we need to find a difficult solution for. <laughs> That's a handful. Uh, you mentioned the changing relationship with the United States. How does so many people from India in the United States now change that? It's much different than it was in the, in the 70s or something. Uh, there's a lot of people from India who have come to the United States, and they're very prominent. They're a force. They're people in Congress. It's, it's well, there's a, a lot of interesting things that have happened. I mean, you have people in public life now who have an Indian origin. Sometimes we feel distressed and disappointed and they're not keeping their focus on that special relationship with India. We also have groups here who are moving in different spheres. Um, there are groups of uh, very remarkable and very, very successful Muslim businessmen. 
um, in the field of high tech and so on, who have kept alive a unique life, which is perhaps even difficult to find amongst the elite Muslims in India. And that's the unique life of combining the uh, dini talim, the religious understanding and religious teaching, with the, uh, the worldview and the market. How they combined this, I saw this over the last two, three days, and I, I'm deeply, deeply impressed. Maybe there is something for Indian Muslims to learn back home. Salman Kurshid is ex-minister of external affairs under the last Congress government in India. He's been in Chicago and talking with uh, non-resident Indians here and talking before the International Strategy and Policy Institute, which was formed uh, in 1994 by a group of American Muslims in the Chicago area. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about India. Thank you very much. Visit India, the place starring with possibilities. Can't wait. <laughs> Thank you. You just heard Jerome and Salman Kurshid touch on the Me Too movement in India. On Wednesday, we'll take a closer look at sexual harassment scandals surrounding elite politicians and celebrities in India. After a break, a popular Mexican poet will answer the question, can a human being be illegal? I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, in today for Jerome McDonald. Jose Olivares is a Chicago-based author. In his new poetry book, he talks about his experiences as a Mexican-American man. Worldview's Viviana Garcia Blanco sat down with Jose to, to discuss some issues in the Latinx community. Here is Jose reading from his new book, Citizen Illegal. Mexican woman illegal and Mexican man illegal have a Mexican illegal American citizen. Is the baby more Mexican or American? Place the baby in the arms of the mother illegal. If the mother holds the baby citizen too long, does the baby become illegal? The baby is a boy citizen. He goes to school citizen. His classmates are American citizen. He is outcast, illegal. His hellos are in the wrong language, illegal. He takes the hyphen separating loneliness, Mexican, from friendship, American, and jabs it at the culprit, illegal. Himself, illegal. His own traitorous tongue, illegal. His name, illegal. His mom, illegal. His dad, illegal. Take a Mexican woman, illegal, and a Mexican man, illegal. If they have a baby and the baby looks wide enough to pass, citizen. If the baby grows up singing Selena songs to his reflection, illegal. If the baby hides from el cucuy and la migra, illegal. If the baby, illegal citizen, grows up to speak broken Spanish, illegal, and perfect English, citizen. If the boy's nickname is Huerito, citizen. If the boy attends college, citizen. If the boy only dates women, illegal, of color, illegal. If the boy, illegal, uses phrases like women of color, citizen. If the boy illegal citizen writes illegal poems illegal. If the boy citizen illegal grows up illegal and can only write illegal this story in English citizen, does that make him more 
American citizen or Mexican illegal. That poem was called Citizen Illegal, written and read by Jose Olivares. Jose, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you back on WBEZ. Is this I've been on WBZ, and then I've also been on Vocalo. So you've been all over the place here with us. Yeah, I'm a big fan. So the poem is called Citizen Illegal, but it's also the name of the book, Citizen Illegal. So can you talk a little bit about why you chose this as your title and talk about the poem itself? So as a title, I wanted it because I knew that the themes of the book are very much about duality and about how it's impossible to talk about citizenship without also talking about the ways in which we criminalize people for doing something that is very natural, which is movement, which is doing what's best for their families. So that's why I called the book Citizen Illegal. In the poem, I think you see various everyday instances that are then interrupted by these feelings of either belonging or not belonging, of feeling criminalized or feeling like you belong, but they're arbitrary, right? And sometimes they're contradictory at the same time. And so I wanted to think about how identity is like that. It's fluid and also contradictory, and it's impossible to be all of one thing or, you know, or to be pure in any way. This book is part of the Breakbeat Poet series. It's a series that brings the aesthetic of hip-hop practice to the page, uh, what about this book is a reflection of hip-hop culture, or what does aesthetic of hip-hop mean? Yeah, so I think one of the ways that I use hip-hop aesthetics in my book is by thinking about how to use samples and remixes and how to take clips of things that are known and make them kind of unfamiliar. So an example of that is there's a poem called I walk into every room and yell where the Mexicans at, right? That features a sample of Selena, that features a sample of Vicente Fernandez. And so taking, you know, the language from the songs and putting it into this political situation. So that's one way that I think about hip-hop aesthetics. But I also think it's very hip-hop because I think it's, one, representative of, like, everyday speech. Like, it's kind of using the same ethical beliefs of hip-hop of like one everyone can take the fragments of their life that they already have and turn it into art and performance so jose i don't know if our audience knows this you studied african-american studies at harvard where you got your ba yeah and you work at the young chicago authors organization and now you write poetry about the mexican-american experience what are your thoughts on anti-blackness among latino communities yeah, so I studied African-American studies at Harvard. Um, I studied that because I come from Calumet City, which is a predominantly African-American city. And I kind of understood in high school as I was watching particular classmates get cuffed by police and searched for no reason. And, you know, I noticed that police presence, the more African-American students our schools had as I was growing up, the more police presence we would see, right? And so I knew that there was no way to fully understand American history in the context of my own being in America, like the context of the American dream, without also going back and trying to understand an inclusive history that includes African-American history, right? Um, in terms of what I think about anti-blackness in the Latinx community, I think it's really horrible. I think it's really 
myopic, like really short-sighted, because I think in particular, and not that all instances in each community are the same, but when I think about something like criminalization, right? Here in Chicago, we know that there's a gang database that is used both by uh, Chicago police to kind of target black men and black people in general, and that that same gang database is used by ICE, that they share that information and it's used to conduct raids and target people as quote-unquote gangsters, right? And so there are moments and there are ways in which we can build together. So for me, that's something that I think is important, right? I think it's a short-sightedness. I think it's a failure on the Latinx community at times to understand the ways in which, one, our own history contains blackness and contains Afro-descendants and the ways in which our struggles can be linked and make us more powerful. Do you think it's addressed among Latinx authors, this idea that, you know, we're using words, we're appropriating cultures? Yeah. I think some Latinx authors are thinking about that. I think Afro-Latinx writers are definitely talking about that. And I think it's important to listen and read and and also continue to have conversations in our own communities. And you have another poem for us, Jose. Yes. So the title of this poem is Getting Ready to Say I Love You to My Dad, It Rains. I love you, Dad, I say to the cat. I love you, Dad, I say to the sky. I love you, Dad, I say to the mirror. It rains and my mom's plants open their mouths. My dad stays on the couch. Maybe the couch opened its mouth and started eating my dad. I love you, dad, I say to the couch, its tongue working my dad like a puppet. I hear the rainfall and think the city is drinking or making itself clean. I am here with my dad and the TV and the TV drones on and on, so I'm not sure I hear it. My dad grunting and nodding. Not the mushy stuff I was expecting. Neither of us cry. No hug or kiss. Just a grunt and a nod. I love you, Dad, I say to my dad. We sit together and watch TV. Outside it rains. My dad turns the volume up. The city is drunk. The city is singing badly in the shower. I killed the plant once because I gave it too much water. Lord, I worry that love is violence. My dad is silent, and our relationship is not new or clean. I killed a plant once because I didn't give it enough water. My dad and I watch TV on a rainy day. We rinse our mouths with this water. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Viviana Garcia Blanco, and I'm speaking with the poet Jose Olivares about his new book, Citizen Illegal. Jose just finished reading for us, getting ready to say I love you to my dad. It rains. Jose, tell us a little bit about the poem. So the poem is about trying to gather the nerves to say I love you to my dad or for the speaker to gather the nerves to say that to the speaker's father. And it seems like a very small task. You know, one of the reasons why I really love the poem is because so often in these interviews, people will ask me to talk about the poems that are about immigration or the poems that are about my family. But I think all of those poems are related. You know, I think one of the things that is true for me is that my dad and I, our relationship is complicated 
by our experiences living in this country, that there were things that my dad kept a secret from me because he was trying to protect me, and that that has caused gaps in our relationship, you know? Um, I remember as a young person going to lawyers' offices and not knowing, you know, we were just in a basement room. We didn't know it was a lawyer's office until years later. And so there's all these things that looking back now, I realize, like, there were things my parents weren't telling us because they were trying to protect us. But it's also hard not to feel distant from the people you love who you're supposed to share things with when you don't have all the information. Can you say that you maybe not expressing feelings of of love or admiration to your father, is this a way that plays into machismo in our culture as well, when men are afraid to express their feelings for other men? Yeah, so... This is one of the things that I think a lot about is how to have healthy, intimate relationships with men, with men in my family, with my dad. This is something that I'm always striving for. I think absolutely one of the byproducts of machismo, which is not just, you know, a part of how I was raised, but also a part of how my dad was raised and part of how his dad was raised, is that we are taught to be, you know, very hard, that we have to be tough, that we have to be strong all the time. That strongness is antithetical to the kind of openness and vulnerability that it takes to love one another. So that's certainly something that in my own life I've always, not always, but that I try to be very aware of right now is how can I be more tender? How can I be more soft? How can I be more open and vulnerable? And you have one more poem for us, Jose. Yes. The title of this poem is, I Love the World, So I Married It. Music, even on the day my grandma died, there were mangoes, though I tasted nothing. But slowly I came back to the world in carne asada, better than I remembered, smoke off the meat. I couldn't contain my happiness, even though it felt offensive, to smile with my grandma getting buried and getting eaten by the flowers. And sometimes I look at my love and think I would like to stay, to put a welcome mat on our doorstep with our names hyphenated. When I was young, I believed in forever. Then my uncle died, and I knew forever included none of my family, included no friends, their stories rotting in my head until I lose them again. So I know I will divorce the world and let it keep my most treasured possessions a six-piece with lemon pepper and mild sauce on, all the honey of a slow kiss, my Apple Music playlist, the way mi abuelita smiled and called me Lupito. I hated that name, except when she said it. So as I have to tell you, this is my favorite poem in your book. It's bittersweet, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still very tender. Was that your intention? My Yeah, absolutely. So my intention was to write... A sweet poem. I was trying to find ways to write more joy into the book. And at the same time, I was also grieving. Um, You know, my grandma passed away maybe a couple months before I wrote this poem, maybe a little bit longer than that. But what I found was that my grandma kind of visited poems that made sense, right? So I didn't go into that poem thinking that I would talk about my grandma But as I was writing, I would think of her and think about the ways that joy and grief are related, right? Yeah, so it ended up being bittersweet. I intended for it to be just sweet. I had to acknowledge the fact that 
I was still grieving and that and when I was grieving, I had to acknowledge that I was also still feeling moments of joy. So, Jose, what's next for you? So the next project that I'm working on is an anthology. It's going to be the Breakbeat Poets Volume 4, Latinext. It's going to be an anthology of 70 or so writers from all across the United States and hopefully beyond the United States. Um, it's going to be an anthology that collects poems and lyrics written in English, Spanish, and hopefully a mix of those two languages as well, maybe even some indigenous languages. And it's going to be a really incredible collection because it's going to collect both writers who are established Latinx voices as well as writers who are up and coming who are going to shape the future of Latinx literature. And I'm really excited to be working with Felicia Chavez and Willie Perdomo on the project. That will be coming out in 2020. And in the meantime, I'm going to be on tour all across the United States. And in March, I'm going to Mexico City, which I'm really excited about as part of the Lit and Loose Festival. Yeah, that's what I'm going to be working on. And also, you know, trying to grow and take care of myself, which is its own job. <laughs> and what is the Lit and Loose Festival? The Lit and Loose Festival is an exchange between Mexico City and Chicago that happens every year. So there's all sorts of great events showcasing collaborations between artists, poets, writers, painters, musicians from Mexico City as well as Chicago. And then in March, uh, everyone from Chicago will go to Mexico City and we're going to do the same show again. Oh, it sounds great. Well, I'm looking forward to your anthology coming out in 2020, you said? Yes. It's a little bit of a wait, but I can hold off until then. Thanks again, Jose, for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm Viviana Garcia Blanco, and we have one final reading from Jose called Mexican Heaven. One. All of the Mexicans sneak into heaven. St. Peter has their name on the list, but none of the Mexicans have trusted a list since Ronald Reagan was president. Two. St. Peter is a Mexican named Pedro, but he's not a saint. Pedro waits at the gate with the shot of tequila to welcome all the Mexicans to heaven, but he gets drunk and forgets about the list. All the Mexicans walk into heaven, even our no-good cousins who only go to church for baptisms and funerals. Three, it turns out God is one of those religious Mexicans who doesn't drink or smoke weed, so all the Mexicans in heaven party in the basement while God reads the Bible and thumbs a rosary. God threatens to kick all the Mexicans out of heaven si no paran con las pendejadas. So the Mexicans drink more discreetly. They smoke outside where God won't smell the weed. God pretends the Mexicans are reformed. Hallelujah. This cycle repeats once a month. Amen. Four. Jesus has a tattoo of La Virgen de Guadalupe covering his back. Turns out he's your cousin Jesus from the block. Turns out he gets reincarnated every day and no one on earth cares all that much. Five, all the Mexican women refuse to cook or clean or raise the kids or pay bills or make the bed or drive you to work or do anything except watch the novelas. So heaven is gross. The rats are fat as roosters, and the men die of starvation. 
Six, there are white people in heaven too. They build condos across the street and ask the Mexicans to speak English. I'm just kidding. There are no white people in heaven. Seven, tamales, tacos, tostadas, tortas, pozole, sopes, huaraches, menudo, horchata, jamaica, limonada, agua. Eight, St. Peter lets Mexicans into heaven, but only to work in the kitchens. A Mexican dishwasher polishes the crystal, smells the meals, and hears the music. They dream of another heaven, one they might be allowed in if they work hard enough. And that was Chicago-based author Josea Oliveras reading from his new poetry book, Citizen Illegal. He spoke with Worldview's Viviana Garcia Blanco. Jerome McDonald is back tomorrow, and you may find it hard to believe, but there is good news out there about climate change. We'll speak with a friend, with our friends at the Union of Concerned Scientists. They have a report out that says the Illinois Future Energy Jobs Act, the state's massive energy bill that passed in 2016, is on track to reduce global warming carbon emissions by 22 percent by the year 2030. So, yay, good news on climate change. So stay tuned for that and more as Jerome McDonald returns to the chair tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by myself, Steve Bynum, and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Steve Bynum, and you've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ.